Joshua 6, verse 17. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things, and make the excuse me, and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord, and they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. There is God's holy, inspired, and errant word. May he bring forth its blessing to us this evening. You know, a lot of people like to say there's a lot of contradiction in the Bible. Uh, that is untrue. <laughs> there are a lot of dilemmas and a lot of things that we don't understand and a lot of things that are hard and difficult for us to reconcile with both who God is and of the love and of the glory of God and of Jesus Christ that we are so familiar with and so willingly want to speak of and focus on. And, and one of those great dilemmas is what's before us. It's going to come up again as we go further on, as we watch Israel going into the various nations and cities within the land of Canaan and utterly destroying all of the people there. One of the great dilemmas is how do we reconcile what God is demanding of Israel against Canaan and, and, and hold that as something that is right and just and good 
while we would, on the other hand, condemn what Nazi Germany did against the Jews or what Rwanda uh, had unfold within its country against the Hutus and the Tutsis. How do you reconcile that? And a lot of people who don't understand, a lot of unbelievers who want to accuse God uh, would, would defy us to bring any sensibility to these issues, to this circumstance that is before us here in Joshua 6, uh, verses 17 to 19, and then you get down to verse 21 where it is carried out. How can you call this a holy war and the other acts genocide? How do you differentiate between those things and are they not the same? Well, I'll be honest with you, when I have non-Christians asking me such questions and presenting what they consider to be contradictions, I will not answer them in, in, in giving them a response that they can then challenge. I take up the position of Christ and answer their questions with a question itself that shows that what they view as a contradiction in religion is a contradiction that they live out every day. Uh, and I've done this, you know. I, I ask them, how can you condemn what Hitler did in Nazi Germany uh, but excuse Canada's heinous acts of abortion every year? Are they both not one and the same? The killing of innocence for the sake of prospering one's own life. Or how is it that the USA is able to condemn Islamic jihads, holy wars, and yet justify their wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? I know these are controversial subjects. But the contradiction doesn't lie in religion. It lies within all of our lands and nations. I'm not saying that resolves their question and our ability to answer their question. But I do note that Jesus always asked them questions as they were trying to confound him in the faith. And I think that's one of the things that we ought to be ready with when we are confronted with them. I actually think there's a greater dilemma than comparing what Joshua is doing uh, with what Hitler and Nazi Germany did against the Jews. I think the greater uh, dilemma is trying to reconcile Joshua 6 with Exodus 23.9 or Leviticus 19.18. More Leviticus 19.18 because that falls in the parameters and scopes of God's call to Israel to be holy because the Lord your God is holy. But what does Exodus 23.9 say? It says... You shall not oppress a stranger. You shall not oppress a stranger. For you know the heart of the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Even more, Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now that, to me, is the greater dilemma. How do you reconcile these with God's call? upon Israel to basically annihilate and destroy the city. And to do this with all the other cities in the land of Canaan. Now, 
There is a caveat. It changes when they come to some of the other cities. They're allowed to keep some of the spoils of war. But everything in Jericho had to be destroyed. And, and there is a sensibility to this from God's perspective. But I want to deal with how some have tried to handle this dilemma and done so poorly. We're very common with uh, understanding the way in which many Christians and scholars will try to distinguish between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and anger and the God of the New Testament coming in Christ is a God of love and acceptance. And, and, and we know that's not true. We're going to hear as we come to it. But if you think that, just read Revelation 19 and tell me what you think of Christ after that. <laughs> because he is the one who executes the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God upon the nations. This is the God of love that you extol over the God of the Old Testament. There is no distinction between these gods. It's one and the same. And when you accept that truth, then you realize God is doing a work, a sovereign work that is some, maybe beyond some of our understanding, but is not contradicting who he is as sovereign Lord of all of creation. There are others who purposely take the route of redacting these parts of Scripture as they would and do with the imprecatory Psalms. We will just ignore them, pretend they're not there. Or when we come to them, we won't read them in our homes and we won't sing of them in the Scriptures. We'll set them aside. They don't belong in our Bible. And there are quite a few, even in the Reformed camp, that do this. And it's wrong. Because what we are saying is that we don't like this aspect of God. Well, it may not be pleasant to our ears. But this is something that we learn of who God is and what his character is like. And with that, realize what his grace is like. And how amazing it truly is. Because in the end, my dear friends, there really isn't much to reconcile as it is coming to know who the Lord our God is in all his majesty and learning what it is to humbly fear the Lord and to praise Him as true and just and holy and merciful. And as we heard this morning in respect of His holiness, that He is indeed the judge of all the earth who does what is right. It's going to be one of those things, you've often heard it said, when we get to heaven... When we all get to heaven, you know that, that hymn in that chorus. What a day of rejoicing it will be. It will be a day of rejoicing to be sure. But we will, I won't say be shocked or surprised because in that true and perfect sinless holiness that we will have in that day, we will come to see that there are many in heaven we did not expect to see. And many in heaven that we thought we would see, but aren't. 
Because the judge of all the earth is alone, holy in that role. And he knows how to do what is right. We don't. We don't. And one of the things that we learn when we're reading this and studying this text very carefully, it's the first point, if you're following them on the back of your bulletin, is that Jericho was condemned by the Lord. It was a condemned city. And and you see it very clearly in verse 17. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. Now, what doesn't become clear in our English translations are the words that are used to speak of this destruction. And you will see in verse 17 the word doomed, the word accursed, and in verse 18 the word accursed several times. It's, it's one and the same word, just sort of translated a little differently in the English language. But in the Hebrew language, you would have heard, now the city shall be karim. Karim, that's, that's the Hebrew word. And then it goes on to say and, um, in verse uh, 18, abstain from the harim, karim, however you want to say that guttural word. The Hebrew word is, that word accursed is the same word as doomed. And, th- and that word means this, God has condemned the city, God has devoted, that, that, that's what the word means. It's an act of devotion by the Lord. He has devoted for destruction this city and all that is in it. An act of devotion. Isn't that strange to hear? And it differs when you get down to verse 26 and you see Joshua cursing anyone who would rebuild the city. That word cursed is a very different word. It means in in that sense to to do what we understand as the word curse, the opposite of blessing, to bring judgment, to to pronounce a a doom in that sense. It's not the same word meaning to devote an act of devotion even to destruction. And God, having given Jericho over to such destruction, indeed having given the land of Canaan over to this destruction, was long known. We have it all the way back 400 years earlier with Abraham. Genesis 15, 16. God has said, I am giving you this land, but it's going to take 400 years because the iniquity of the Canaanites, particularly the Amorites, hasn't come to its fullness yet. What we don't realize is that this is a place and a people who should have been destroyed long ago. But why weren't they? Because in his glory to establish his kingdom in the nation of Israel, God long-sufferingly waited 400 years for the fullness of their iniquity to be complete. The forbearance of God in that way. 
And, and what is it that we know about a God who would so long-sufferingly wait until more and more and more evil increased in the land to its fullness? What do we know about that long-suffering nature of God's forbearance? It is so that in the meantime, he might show his mercies to those who don't deserve it. You read that in Romans chapter 2. Do you not know that the forbearance of the Lord and the goodness of the Lord is what leads us to repentance? May God could act as the judge of all the earth here and now and there would not be much of Canada left. Honestly. And we don't stop and acknowledge that truth because we say, well, that's not how God is. Well, that isn't how God was even here. And we forget that because we look at what is occurring in the destruction of this city and the killing of all that are within it. It just seems so violent. I read again this past week, I referenced it this morning, but we were talking about how the Supreme Court of Canada has uh, deemed it uh, cruel and unusual punishment to have someone who has committed multiple murders to be sentenced beyond 25 years without probation or the hope of probation. And that means that some people like Justin Burke who, who killed three police officers over a decade ago in Mountain, whose sentence was consecutive 25-year sentence for each murder is now going to be uh, able to uh, sue for probation in 15 years. And we think that's justice. You, you see, the world's view of justice is not justice. God is the only judge who really knows what to do right. We get justice wrong. Do you know one of the reasons why most your, uh, Western societies do not want capital punishment is because we get it wrong. And instead of saying, let's do better, they say, let's make our system of justice more incomplete. And we think we're being honorable. Justice. Canaan was not a morally kind and godly land. <laughs> Let's acknowledge that. Canaan was a vile, immoral land. <laughs> Go back to Genesis 19 and Sodom and Gomorrah and, and, and just think of what the Lord did in a night to destroy all the cities of the plain except for that little city, Zor. So that Lot had some place to flee. And, and despite, you know, the, the vileness of the city of Sodom itself, let's just reflect on how the vileness of that city affected Lot. And he was willing to hand over his two daughters to that very crowd that wanted to do violence against the ones who came into his, his house as if he thought, let me meet their vileness with less vileness. 
That's Canaan. And, and, and that's the iniquity that was there 400 years earlier. God has said, it hasn't come to its fruition yet. How much more vile did it become? There are some records that speak of, of the, that would even probably make Canada blush today. The uh, excavations that they have dug up, the archaeology that they have done and found. The child sacrifices. And the sexualized idolatry, barbarism. This was a land known for these things. And God has come to say that I am going to destroy this people and this land so that I can set my king in place of it. That's a good thing, is it not? And it wasn't that Jericho didn't know God's purposes. You read in chapter 2, they knew that Israel was coming in to take their land. They had messengers come into their cities. It's interesting that uh, the spies, we call them spies, but here in, in verse uh, 17, uh, in, in the passage that we have, twice they're called messengers. That's the same word we translate angels. But when you hear the word messengers, what do you think? They were conveying a message to Jericho that God has given us this land. And, and the Lord even made his intentions known as Israel's armies marched around the city once for six days. And, and, and then on that seventh day, they marched around the city for seven times. And we may look at that and say, what's the significance of it? But they knew that the armies of Israel have come to destroy the city. And even there, as judgment was so impending, there was time for more Rahabs to come forth. But they weren't willing. They were deeply hardened in their sinfulness. One of the things of significance is that seventh day where they march around the city seven times. Seven, seven. We often know and think of that numbering uh, of scripture that has significance and the number seven does have significance it means wholeness fullness completeness it's sort of like the shalom number if you will and it speaks of perfection and it's often said the number of god yeah and what's the number of man we know that number of man is six and why is it six it's because we fall short of god's perfection We're one shy of it. And we can't, in all of our doing, match the glory and the perfections of God. He's the seven. We're six. It's like being number two all the time. And never winning. But the thing about seven and seven marches is that it brings us to the end of Scripture. Revelation. And and God uses that number seven to speak of the fullness of his judgment, ready to be poured out upon the whole of the earth. Revelation 6, the seven seals. Revelation 8, the seven trumpets. Revelation 16, the seven bowls. bowls, The the fullness of God's wrath. The perfections 
of God's judgment are going to be poured out. And God is using all of this to show to His people that He is God, the perfect judge of all the earth. And that He has devoted this city for destruction so that the earth may know that He is the judge of all the earth. My friends, that truth is still in place today. God's Karim is still in place. God hates sin. You know, every day God is looking down upon the earth and he says, is there anyone who is good? Psalm 14, most of you know that. I know it begins with those words, the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. You know, that means, that isn't saying that the fool is simply saying there's nobody that I have to give attention to. What it's saying is, there is no God that I am submitting to. I am my own master. I am the captain of my soul, the master of my destiny. How many of you have heard that? Right? Who is the captain of your soul? Who is the master of your divinity? It is God. You may not want to bow the knee to God, but you will one day. You may not want to recognize his authority to command your life, but you will one day see that he exercises that authority over you, whether you like it or not, because he is God. And here Jericho becomes an example to the nations of the world of what will happen to those who defy him, who give themselves over completely to the sinfulness of their hearts, who would say in their hearts, there is no God that I need to be afraid of. Yes, there is. Because Israel did not bring down those walls. God did. And and Israel was able to go into a city, great as it was, and destroy everything with very little resistance. Why? Because the fear of the Lord met them. Here in Scripture... And this is, this is the thing that always needs to meet us as God's people. That God deals justly with the wicked every day. We just don't realize it at times. You know, when you see the floods that happen, or the earthquakes, or the volcanoes, and so many people are, are devastated by these things. In history... God has always shown and displayed His sovereign, holy justice upon the earth. God did that in Genesis 7 with the flood. The iniquity of the hearts of men was so violent and evil all the time that God said, I have had enough. I'm destroying the work of my hands. That is no different than what is happening here in Jericho. In the land of Canaan. Where you get to Genesis 19 in Sodom and Gomorrah, the testimony of those cities of the land of Canaan was still evident to this day. 400 years earlier with the Dead Sea. Why is it dead? God destroyed those cities. What went on in Egypt? Exodus uh, up to chapter 14. 
But it's when you get to Revelation 19 that you see what is happening in Jericho is a prelude to the greater day of judgment that is waiting for all the nations of the world. And in Revelation 19, in that Lord's return in great power and glory and every eye will see Him, He comes with a purpose. And God is very explicit. The return of Christ, who is the faithful and true one, who is coming in righteousness to judge the nations and to make war against the nations, treading on them, listen to this, treading on them the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty. Here is Israel giving us a picture of that fearful day as God's servant treading the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty upon a violent, iniquitous people. That's what's happening. In condemning every man, woman, and child, and all of the animals, etc., etc., the Lord had devoted them all to destruction, to the praise of His glorious justice. That is an awesome, fearful thing to see. defies many people's thoughts that even all children are innocent. They were doomed, devoted to destruction as well as their parents. Talking about unbelievers here who defied God, who would not bend the knee. It's hard for us to accept this side of God because it seems so against our understanding of innocence. No one is innocent before God. But as well in condemning this whole city to destruction, it was with purpose. God had come to establish His kingdom in place of the kingdoms of men, a kingdom of righteousness and truth. Israel would fail in it over time and time and time again. We're going to be going into Judges after Joshua and we're going to see, yes, they started out well, but they failed. They failed to display the glory of God's kingdom, the kingdom of righteousness and truth. But we know that again, all of that is but a prelude of what Christ has come to do. To bring forth the kingdom of God upon the earth where righteousness and truth dwell in the four corners of this world. And to do that, he will judge the nations. It's there before us. When we think of that and we see Rahab in the midst of this, what do we realize? When we think of that today and we read these chapters, what do we realize? We realize we are Rahab. That's how we are. We are Rahab who has escaped this judgment of God solely because of the grace of God. He has plucked us as a brand from the fire. You see how this turns our thoughts to realize just what amazing grace 
has stooped down to take this wretched man and to say, I choose you for life. Wow. Is it because uh, I was better? Was Rahab any better than the other? Rahab was a harlot. We keep seeing that again and again and again. The harlot. Take the harlot and bring her out. <laughs> you know, some of you weren't here last week, but where it says that in, in, uh, in uh, sorry, I turned my page too quickly, where it says that she was left uh, outside the camp of Israel, that word left means she was brought to a resting place. She found rest on the outskirts of God's kingdom people. We're Rahab. That's all we are as a church. We're, we're nothing better in that scope of things. We are still man, the number six. We living in the grace of God whose forbearance with this world has stayed his judgment until the fullness of his people are brought into his kingdom. And that, my friends, is amazing undeserved love and kindness from a holy God. There were exceptions. God consecrated some of the things for his purposes to be taken into the treasury of the Lord. One man said of this that the reason these precious metals and vessels were chosen was because they could withstand the fiery justice of God's wrath. Well, that may be so. Uh, I don't know uh, if I would go that far. Simply, uh, they, they were things that God chose to keep for himself. Israel was not allowed to take an ounce of pillage from this city it belonged to God it has been devoted to him but the thing that was being consecrated to the Lord and we don't want to miss this is when you come to verse 18 that God is showing Israel more than anything else God is showing to Israel how they have been consecrated in the midst of his justice and how guarded and careful they were to be. Look how many times he emphasizes, And you, Israel, you, my church, you, my people, whom I have delivered and called to be my royal priesthood, my kingdom on earth. You, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, Abstain from those that have been devoted to destruction, lest you become devoted to destruction, accursed, when you take of the accursed things, and you make the camp of Israel a camp devoted to destruction, cursed and troubled. You hear what he's saying? Church of Jesus Christ, look and learn what happens to those who defy God, who say in their heart, there is no God. You who have been exposed to the glory of God's grace and blessings, look what will happen to those who would so grieve and sin against God. You are consecrated to God, set apart, holy to Him, by His love and mercy in Christ. 
abstain from this world. See what I am doing to this world. See what I will do against all of the nations of this world for my kingdom alone to be upon the earth. Walk in that fear. Israel is called to understand how they are a consecrated people so as not to fall into the same judgment of these nations being condemned. My friends, we have that same, same exhortation to us in the New Testament. And we'll close with this if you turn to Philippians 3. It meets us again today in the Lord. Philippians 3, verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And here he is speaking of people within the camp of the kingdom of God. Philippians chapter 3 verse 17 to its end. That enemies of the cross are present even within the church of Christ. And you get to verse 19. Whose end is destruction. Whose God is their belly. Whose glory is their shame. Who have set their mind on earthly things. Be warned. You are a holy people. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are eagerly waiting for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is coming to, to transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able to subdue all things to Himself. Dear Christians, we have been set apart for a far greater glory than what this world can offer. Don't be entrapped. Don't give your life. Don't spend your energy and time for that which has been devoted to destruction. It comes back to that calling that's upon us all as Christians. Seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God. Hard lessons. And we're going to see as we come to chapter 7 that one of God's own covenant people experience this judgment. The warning is there for us. Don't become devoted to this world. It doesn't mean you don't live and work and, and, and uh, you know, have a home and acquire things, but don't become devoted to the things of this world. They've been doomed to destruction. You have been doomed, not doomed, to destruction. You have been set apart for eternal life and glory. Know your citizens. Thank the Lord for that grace in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.